0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Pod Civility. I'm Robert Daniel. I'm sorry, thanks, Sharma. This week on the pod, comey, comey, comey. Just kidding. This week, it's Jeff Sessions. We're looking at his testimony concerning the Russian investigation and conversations he had with Donald Trump. After that, we'll be looking at the North Korean nuclear missile crisis. A small little thing we'll probably solve in the next 50 minutes on this podcast. All that and more on this week's episode of Pod Civility.
1: Mr. Comey said that your continued engagement with the Russian investigation was, quote, problematic, and he, Mr. Comey, could not discuss it in public. Mr. Comey also said that FBI personnel had been calling for you to step aside from the investigation at least two weeks before you finally did so. Now, in your prepared statement, you stated you received only, quote, limited information necessary to inform your recusal decision. But given Director Comey's statement, we need to know what that was. Were you aware of any concerns at the FBI or elsewhere in government about your contacts with the Russians or any other matters relevant to whether you should step aside from the
2: Russian investigation? Senator Wyden. I am not stonewalling. I am following the historic policies of the Department of Justice. You don't walk into any hearing or committee meeting and reveal confidential communications with the President of the United States who is entitled to receive uh, confidential communications and your best judgment about a host of issues uh, uh, and and have to be accused of stonewalling for not answering them. So I, I, I would push back on that. Secondly, uh, Mr. Comey, perhaps he didn't know, but I basically recused myself the day the first day I got into the office because I never accessed files. I never learned the names of investigators. I never met with them. I never asked for any documentation. The documentation, what little I received, was mostly already in the media and was presented by the senior ethics public responsibility, professional responsibility <laughs> attorney in the department. General- and I made an honest and proper a decision to recuse myself as i told senator feinstein and the members of the committee i would do when they confirmed me so
3: what you just heard is this back and forth with the senator and jeff sessions about a couple of meetings encounters that jeff sessions had with um, russian uh, foreign minister uh, kislyak so sessions Holds that his meetings, his encounters, were as lawmaker, was as a lawmaker, and not as someone on the Trump campaign. And this what you just heard is basically Jeff Sessions in normal mode, in his reserved, southern, genteel uh, attitude. What you're about to hear is Jeff Sessions in Super Saiyan 2 mode. And here's the audio for that.
1: General Sessions, respectfully, you're not answering the well, question. what is the question the question is <laughs> Mr. Comey said that there were matters with respect to the recusal that were problematic
2: and he couldn't talk about them. what are they uh, that why don't you tell me they are none Senator Wyden. there are none. I can tell you that for absolute certainty we can, we can you tell this is a secret innuendo being leaked out there about me and I don't appreciate it, and I've tried to give my best and truthful answers to any committee I've appeared before, and it's really uh, 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 people are suggesting through innuendo uh, that I have been not honest about matters, and I've tried to be honest.
1: My my time is short. You've made your point that you think Mr. Comey is engaging in innuendo. We're going to keep
2: digging well, on this. Well, Senator Biden, he did not say that. I don't — did he, he say — said it was problematic, and I asked you well, what was problematic about it. Uh, the the — the, uh, some of that leaked out of the committee that he said in, in uh, closed sessions. Okay,
1: one more question. I asked former FBI director whether your role in firing him violated your recusal, given that President Trump said he infir- fired Comey because of the Russian investigation. Director Comey said this was a reasonable question. So I want to ask you just point blank. Why did you sign the letter recommending the firing of Director Comey when it violated your recusal?
2: It did not violate my recusal. It did not violate my recusal. Uh, That would be the answer to that. And the letter that I signed represented my views that had been uh, uh, formulated for some time. Mr. Chairman, just so if I can finish,
1: that answer, in my view, doesn't pass the smell test. The president tweeted repeatedly about his anger at investigations into his associates in Russia. The day before you wrote your letter, he tweeted that the collusion story was a total hoax and asked when will this taxpayer-funded charade end. I don't
2: think your answer passes the smell test. Well, Senator Wyden, I think I should be allowed to briefly respond at least and would say the letter, the memorandum uh, that Senator, uh, that uh, Deputy uh, Rosenstein wrote and my letter that uh, accompanied it uh, represented my views of the situation.
1: I'll ask that on the second round. Thank
0: you, Mr. Chairman. That was Jeff Sessions coming in real hot. Uh, getting a little testy, um, a little testier than we've seen James Comey get, um, and maybe rightly so, um, with these rumors and innuendo that um, Jeff Sessions had had these secret meetings with Kislyak that might uh, make him you know, uh, an improper fit to lead or oversee the Russian investigation.
3: And I think that really is the crux of the issue. At the point where these senators were questioning Jeff Sessions, all we've really had has been rumors— innuendo, leaks, there's yet to be any kind of concrete evidence showing that Jeff Sessions uh, had any inappropriate meetings uh, with Russian agents.
0: Jeff Sessions, throughout the the hearing, frequently used the phrase, I can't recall, in a perfectly Southern Jeff Sessions voice. And you kind of, you have to give him the benefit of the doubt here, I I, I guess, but um, the frequency with which he used it, um, especially when he was asked about potential meetings at the Mayflower Hotel in D.C. When he was which at a meeting. Denied. Which he denied. Which he, well, he said he didn't remember um, whether the meeting, whether he met Kislyak that night, but he was he he remembered or he thought he remembered that Kislyak was in the room um, that night. And so... But
3: here, here's the thing, to maybe decide with him a little bit on this, I, I heard that testimony, and when he was talking, he was asked how many people were in this room, so it turns out to be a a dinner party, and he said that there's, I think, a few dozen people in there. In that situation, it is more difficult. If if you've ever been uh, invited to a party, maybe you haven't. If
0: you're listening to this podcast, you probably have. You're probably culturally relevant. I mean, you're probably going to parties. And so if you've
3: ever gone to a party, there have definitely been people that you may have, met uh, tangentially and don't really remember or recall meeting that person. Or had
0: a brief, hey, how are you, I'm Jeff Sessions from Alabama type of, you know, conversation.
3: Flip side of that, you may remember if you meet a foreign minister from Russia.
0: Especially one with an incredible last name like Kislyak. Um, but the point, I think, with these questions, and something to look out for, this is, we're now entering the purely speculation part of my um, discussion of Jeff Sessions' testimony. We never speculate. So this, this is, is, this, is pure, this is relatively fake news for those of you out there. But I think—and there is sometimes a pattern of senators who obviously have knowledge of classified information poking at issues that they have seen on the classified end, but doing so in a way that is acceptable in an open session. Um, and so there there are rumors on the, on the Twitter that— um, that there is evidence on in Signals Intelligence that was picked up um, that Kislyak and C. Jeff Sessions had a conversation. Um, and I think that's why you're seeing this push, and that's why he keeps getting asked about this meeting. Um, now, it could be that Kislyak talked with him briefly and then exaggerated it in a cable back to Russia that we intercepted, or it could be that Kislyak made it up. And it could be that we don't actually have signals intelligence to say that actually happened. But isn't it
3: just too early for all of that? Like, I, for instance, I appreciate that uh, the Senate wants to get to the bottom of this and they brought Jeff Sessions in under oath. But at the same time, it's really hard to square how much animosity the Senate is showing, at least the Democrats in the Senate are showing towards Jeff Sessions. Uh, Al Franken calling his testimony unsettling. It, it's, difficult to see that level of animosity when you have nothing to really go on all you have is conjecture maybe they should wait for maybe they should ask these questions that they want and then wait for Mueller to get finally to some resolution as the special counsel and
0: i think that's picking up on what we talked about in our last pod about how um really we won't have resolution with with this until bob Mueller makes a decision and has a final report and in the meantime we're going to have these constant hearings and speculation um, that the democrats may be using for political purposes um or that may also be looking for the truth but in this instance i mean you really were pushing jeff sessions on kind of a rumor
3: so this is really it right like, that's all we have all that this entire dog and pony show has been about has been about drawing partisan lines you didn't really see any republicans step out of the fray Go you know, towards the, the center, towards the, the left, and then you didn't have the, the same happen on the other side because there's no evidence either way. We don't know what happened yet. So, why are we even still talking about this?
0: Well, I think one of the other reasons they brought Jeff Sessions to the committee, beyond just the potential meetup with Kislyak at the Mayflower Hotel, and by the way, if you're going to have a clandestine meeting, with a russian foreign minister or russian ambassador it doesn't really make sense to do it in a dinner party of 36 at the mayflower hotel Um, that really doesn't seem like the type of place where you would plot the grand collusion to steal the presidency from the world's greatest superpower but that's besides the point i think they also brought jeff sessions in front of the committee because of his role in um james comey's firing james comey yes that james comey the fan Of the pod, the the subject of the previous two podcasts. We
3: weren't going to talk about James Comey. Uh, he's back. He's back. He's always here. He's
0: always here. But you know, Jeff Sessions um, signed a letter that was written by Rod Rosenstein, or at least presented that letter to the president, recommending that James Comey be fired from uh, leading the FBI. And so a lot of senators questioned him today as to whether that was appropriate because he had recused himself from any connection with the Russian investigation. And he really
3: didn't have a great answer for that. He dodged a lot on on answering that question. And his
0: answer was basically, you know, I don't know what Donald Trump was thinking specifically with regards to firing him. I stand by the letter that was written saying James Comey had lost the confidence of the FBI um, through his handling of the Hillary Clinton investigation. Um, I don't know how much I buy that. I think Jeff Sessions um, may be be spinning a little bit here. Um, And again, this kind of led to a discussion where they asked him, Um, They asked Jeff Sessions about his discussions with Donald Trump, Um, and then Jeff Sessions um, refused to reveal those because he believed they were held in confidence with the president. He wasn't claiming executive privilege, but he was saying, um, I can't speak about direct conversations I've had with the president.
3: So where do we go from here? Where does this Senate investigation go? Do they table it, wait for Mueller to... To do his work, or do we just keep bringing in more people?
0: We're going to keep bringing in more people, um, and you know, I think that the 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 investigation on the Senate side is not going anywhere. Same with the House, especially when late this week there broke rumors that a personal friend of Donald Trump, who works for Newsmax organization, um, had suggested that Donald Trump may be considering firing Bob Mueller. Which there is zero evidence beyond that speculation from his friend on the media and Newt Gingrich, who also kind of floated this idea. Uh, Newt Gingrich, whose wife was just named secretary of— or ambassador to the Vatican, which is pretty—
3: Which, just as an aside, is a ridiculous situation because Newt Gingrich, when Mueller was first hired on, talked about how great that was, about how the Democrats should definitely stop talking and complaining about things now that someone uh, that's so fair has been hired. And fast forward just a very short amount of time— And now he's back saying that, well, Mueller could not be fair.
0: And it could be that he is, you know, doing Donald Trump's bidding on this because Donald Trump gave his wife um, an ambassadorship to the Vatican. Um, which is kind of ironic because, of course, Newt Gingrich has had his own issues of um, marriage. Oh, we probably definitely don't need to Get into that. I, we that don't. Be we multiple don't. Pods. Yeah, and that's so, not yeah. you know that's not really a civil conversation here, and so we're not even going to delve into that. It's not relevant. But the point is that um, the Senate investigations will always exist as, a, and I think that there's no point. They would. They'll never. They'll never stop doing this because theoretically, as we discussed a few podcasts ago, Donald Trump has the ability to fire Bob Mueller. Sure, technically he does. It, the optics of that would not look great. I think that it, when people ask, uh, what would be something that could really turn this? Well, if he were to fire Bob Mueller without cause, I think that would really get the attention of people.
3: If he did fire Bob Mueller, that would be one of the worst decisions that he could make just in the sense that this investigation would never go away. Right? Exactly. Like at, at this moment, Mueller could very well come out and say, well, there's no evidence saying... Uh, that the Trump campaign colluded with Russia or anything inappropriate in that way happened. And that should really be the end of it. Of course, you'll have people on the Democratic side trying to get that going uh, and continue it till the midterms. But if he was to fire Bob Mueller, this would absolutely trail into the midterm elections, po- probably even into the next um, cycle of presidential elections. I mean,
0: do you think he's going to fire Bob Mueller? I I don't. I, I really don't. don't.
3: But then again, there are a lot of things that I thought Donald Trump would or would not do, and he has proven me wrong. Uh, so I don't. I don't know. I can't speak to that. It's something that Jeff Sessions said today when asked about Trump's rationale for firing Comey or wanting Comey fired, uh, which was that he said he can't speak to uh, what. Is in the mind of the president and just kind of to bring this back in uh, to the loop with Jeff Sessions when he was asked a lot of substantive questions when he did finally get past the I can't remember I can't recall he did have some viable answers to the questions that he was asked right like for instance he was asked about why um, he was the one that was firing Comey why his signature was there and he said that his job is as Attorney General to hire the very best people in those agencies, and he agreed with, uh, with Deputy Attorney General Rob Rosenstein's memo. So really that is – as an employer, that's all you would need because James Comey at the end of the day is – or was an at-will employee.
0: And I think that's a good answer. I think he's right in that sense. Just because he recused himself from the Russian investigation doesn't mean he's not – um, leading the department, and especially in an instance where the deputy who hadn't recused himself, Rod Rosenstein, um, was writing in support of um, this action. Now, it's it's weird because obviously the rationale Rod Rosenstein gives and the rationale that, that Jeff Sessions signed off on is not necessarily the one articulated by Donald Trump.
3: And you could argue about that all day. At exactly. the end, At the end of the day, though, it really didn't matter. You didn't need some you know, bombshell type of allegation against James Comey to be able to fire him.
0: You didn't. And I think honestly, like you know, the, the big takeaway from Donald Trump even giving that rationale was that, you know, it's the it's like what Paul Ryan said and we discussed last last week on the podcast, he's just new to this. He shouldn't have said that. <laughs> I mean you don't have to give a reason why you fired James Comey. Um and he's so He's new to this. He, he's new he's, to this. He's very new. The whole leading thing. Um, I saw a good political cartoon about that where it, it had the Titanic facing the iceberg and it had, you know, Leo on the bow of the ship saying, don't worry, he's just new to this. That's it. I mean, that's really what where we're at. But who knows what will happen with the investigation. I'm sure they'll have more people to testify. Maybe even James Comey will come back and other people will um, drop more bombs that will be able to talk about.
3: So with those set uh, those sets of bombshells out of the way, Let's move on to some other bombs. And I know that this pun is very tired at this point. But the U.S. is currently considering sanctions on countries that do illegal business with North Korea.
0: Why Why are we considering sanctions with North Korea, Sarge?
3: So who really knows? The The answer, the only real answer is because that's all we have. Right? Rex Tillerson announced these possible sanctions, which if you really parse through the statement, don't make a whole heck of a lot of sense because... We're sanctioning countries that do illegal business with North Korea. We already have sanctions in place against North Korea and most countries that do illegal business. This is just duplicative.
0: It's hard to sanction a country like North Korea because their economy is uh, handicapped as it is.
3: Well, what's going to happen is you can, you can sanction as many countries as you want. You can sanction random countries like the Maldives or Libya. but It doesn't matter because we're not going to sanction the country uh, to the fullest extent the fullest extent that needs to be sanctioned, which is China.
0: Exactly. China does the majority of the business with North Korea's economy, um, but we're not going to pass sanctions on China with regards to this problem. We're going to use leverage to try and push them to help solve the problem, the problem being, obviously, that North Korea is seeking to and has developed nuclear weapons. They're seeking to weaponize them and put them um, into uh, ICBMs that could then reach um, either the continental United States, Hawaii, or of course, Seoul or Japan.
3: So here's the bigger issue with all of that, or that, which is that North Korea has been testing at this point on a weekly basis, newer missiles, uh, missiles that are going to keep getting better, uh, because that's what they've shown that they can do. So the real issue is what does the United States do while we are having to worry about All of the issues with the Russian collusion, uh, the election hacks. We have uh, issues going on uh, right now with Saudi Arabia and Iran and Qatar. A lot of those are are issues that don't have real substantive threats, like threats to people's lives. What threats do are the ones posed by ISIS, the terrorist attacks, and then also one that really hasn't been talked about in the media very much, which is North Korea.
0: And before Donald Trump came into office, I I think it was pretty well covered that Barack Obama had told him that the biggest threat to America was North Korea.
3: But it's not like... Barack Obama did a
0: lot in exactly. his presidency
3: either.
0: Exactly. He did not. And the fact is uh, it's not an easy problem to solve. Like we said, you can't really sanction them as effectively as, for instance, you could sanction a country like Iran, which we did sanction and then ultimately were able to use that to get them to a negotiating table, whether you think the deal or not was good. It was It was the fact that Iran was a, was a country that wished to have a more open economy. North Korea has no desire for that.
3: And before we get really too into the weeds with this i think it's important to set up the issue right you have your, you have like everyone kind of knows north korea south korea don't like each other formerly no uh, formally no peace treaty they're just an armistice and north korea developed nuclear weapons a few years ago and has been trying to increase the range of those weapons because right now they don't need nuclear weapons to destroy basically all of south korea seoul is uh, just a few, I think, less than 100 miles or so from from North Korea's border. So they could have traditional artillery that does damage and basically destroys uh, one of the alpha cities in the world. And then the U.S. also has 28,000 or so troops stationed in North Korea that are in danger of being attacked. If Kim Jong-un, the fairly crazy leader of North Korea, decides, um, decides to go ahead and, and try to attack... Their issue right now is trying to increase the range of their weapons to be able to reach mainland Japan uh, and then also reach the Hawaiian Islands and possibly the west coast of the United States.
0: But what's the rationale, Sarthik? Why is a country like North Korea so focused on developing a nuclear weapon and not focused on providing any types of services for their people?
3: It's because force fields don't exist, Robert. That's That's why. That's true. Nuclear weapons represent to a lot of people the greatest offensive threat. But more than that, they have proven to be the greatest defensive measure. When a country has nuclear weapons, that country doesn't go to war against other countries with nuclear weapons. There has not been really an instance of two nuclear armed countries going to war against each other. When you look at, and not to get into much of a history lesson, but when you look at countries that have had uh, bad relations against each other, the US, Soviet Union, Pakistan, India, China, India, when you look at these countries as soon as they have developed nuclear weapons their number of wars against each other has gone to zero. Sure there's there's small isolated conflicts here and there, but there are no more wars. There's no large scale war because of mutually assured destruction and that's what North Korea wants. It wants a, a you know a spot at the table. Of negotiations because it now is nuclear armed too. It doesn't have to worry about being attacked.
0: Uh, so do do we? It's a difficult position as uh, obviously for America's security. It's in our best interest for them to not have a nuclear weapon. It's
3: too late. That it's it's too late for that. When we had our opportunities back during the Bush administration, which is where and the Clinton administration, right, and the Clinton administration, where North Korea was on the cusp of getting those uh, nuclear weapons, getting that technology, we were trying to. Basically give the carrot out there on the stick uh, instead of trying to be more stern with it, which in their defense Because of Seoul because South Korea is so close uh, They could not risk that country basically being obliterated uh, Because of those uh, nuclear weapons and because of the the uh, the regular non nuclear weapons that North Korea has So it's not an easy issue. If anyone brings up the issue and says that that's an example of weakness on the part of any administration, that person is wrong. No one has figured out the the correct way of disarming a nuclear power.
0: And people have tried. Obviously, we just mentioned the previous administrations that have dealt with this. Um, during the during Bill Clinton's administration, there was an agreed upon framework that was going to allow North Korea to develop domestic nuclear power without a weaponized program. That agreement failed.
3: And let uh, me let me just hedge the statement that I just made about the fact that there hasn't been a correct way to disarm a nuclear country. Countries have been. Um, forthcoming before in giving up nuclear weapons. When I say correct, I'm talking about a a standard, a country that has had not it has not not had negative consequences because of that move. Uh, And so when you look at I think the two countries that really come to mind are the Ukraine and Libya. Ukraine after the fall of the Soviet Union, because it was a part of that union had thousands of nuclear weapons in a stockpile. It gave up those weapons. And just as we saw recently, just a few years ago, Russia went ahead and annexed Crimea, a part of the Ukraine.
0: And I think it's safe to say, while it's hard to know for sure, that if the Ukraine had had nuclear weapons, Russia would not have annexed Crimea.
3: It would have at least have been uh, much more wary of going in and stoking those flames. There
0: was essentially no, really no threat to Russia in doing that. Um, you know, you, the, the possible threat of American sanctions, of course, but they were already heavily sanctioned at the time. And then really there was no Ukrainian military threat that was significant enough to deter them.
3: And, and al- along, along those same lines, you have what happened in Libya with Muammar Gaddafi. Right? Libya was pursuing a nuclear weapons program. Gaddafi was gung-ho on getting uh, nuclear weapons for that country. In the United States... Led uh, the UN effort to disarm Libya, and when they did, right that became uh, that became international sensation. Libya was hailed as this country that has embraced peace, and Muammar Gaddafi, even though he was a dictator and was oppressive to a lot of his people, was hailed as this man that had uh, finally embraced uh, the the world community. Fast forward just a few years, and he is now he is he was then. Um, being criminalized for the way that he was oppressing his people, and Libya no longer had the nuclear weapon force field to turn to when other countries started calling for a coup in in, in Libya when uh, no fly zones were set up.
0: And in fact, Gaddafi ended in a pretty uh, pretty epic demise.
3: On Twitter, it was on Twitter, it was live. People were watching him being hanged. Right, like now North Korea, Kim Jong Un. Who I don't know if he has a Twitter or not. I doubt it. But he can now go and look at this situation, the hanging of Muammar Gaddafi, as what may happen if he gives up nuclear weapons. Uh, like he, they don't. North Korea has nothing else to really fall back on their main export is ballistic missiles i mean
0: that's it Uh, and really one of the things that is is probably most fearful to u.s policymakers is not necessarily that north korea would nuke a u.s city or japan or even um, seoul it's that if they develop this technology that's easily weaponized aka they can make um, nuclear um, devices that are small enough to be put on the tips of warheads then it's possible that those could be transferred and sold to other more nefarious actors non-state actors who would likely who would be more likely to use them
3: and in all of this the culprit that gets blamed a lot is china that china is propping up this regime that they are the ones providing uh, material aid substantive uh, trade relations with north korea and helping to keep that country's nuclear program moving forward so from an American, Western, uh, even just Western perspective, that is bad, right? That's just wrong. But the problem is you have to look at it also from China's point of view. Right? South Korea is a staunch ally of the United States. It fought alongside the United States in the Korean War. North Korea is a staunch ally of China. And if North Korea, let's say China did listen to the world community, listen to the United States, and uh, turned its back on North Korea— That allows uh, the door to be open for South Korea and the United States to gain influence in that country, uh, possibly to lead a coup, to invade, whatever uh, may happen, just to gain a foothold further into the Korean Peninsula, that then bookends uh, China. The, The United States then would have another peninsula, another part of Asia where its influence extends out even more, and China is trying to assert itself as a world power and does not want that.
0: And when you look at spheres of influence, you can pretty easily determine that it's really in China's best interest to prevent the United States from having easy access to the northern part of the Korean peninsula that borders China. Um, If you're playing on a doomsday scenario and you want to invade a country like China, it would be advantageous to have that peninsula that leads into the border.
3: Well, absolutely. I think that's one of the toughest places to defend
0: and risk. Exactly, and I mean, I know listeners of the pod have played Risk, and many a good a good gamer has fallen on that edge of the board. Um, but so I guess Sartha, here's a question that I have, and I think there's maybe not an easy answer. But do these countries have a right to have a nuclear weapon? I mean, it's it's so, tough sometimes just to say you can't have that because we tell you so. It's like, well, you've developed the technology. I mean, like obviously it's in our best security interest, but like, wh- how do we? I mean, we can't. This is a problem that will only keep occurring, I guess, is what I'm saying.
3: So it seems like the right to a nuclear weapons uh, to a, a nuclear weapon, lots of times, gets muddled into the right to defend oneself. Exactly, because as we've seen, there is not really a country out there that's able to match up against a country like the United States, arm for arm. There really isn't. Uh, the U.S. and a lot of its European allies have the conventional weapons game down, right? Like they have the best tanks or we have the best uh, equipped military. So the only real way for these smaller countries to be able to compete is to invest in nuclear technology. And that's what we're seeing. If you think about a country that the United States over the last few decades has had Iraqi history with, you think about countries like Libya, think about countries like Iran, Iraq, North Korea, These countries are moving toward or have moved uh, towards trying to acquire nuclear weapons because they fear things that the United States has done. It'd be a different situation if all of this was just conjecture. Well, the U.S. may invade. But we've shown that we have a willingness to go into countries and to initiate regime change. That's happened before. And these smaller countries do feel like... The only way they can defend themselves, the only way they can assert a right to defend themselves is by combining the acquisition of nuclear weapons into the affirmation of that right.
0: But the problem is, the more countries that have nuclear weapons, the more nuclear weapons there are, which means the more, you know, the, it increases the likelihood that a weapon will fall into the hands of a non-state actor that lacks the deterrence that a state actor does. A state actor doesn't want to use their nuclear weapons because they know that their whole country will be obliterated if they do in return. Now, that mutually assured destruction doesn't exist with a non-state actor.
3: So the problem really is where do we start and stop? There's the paradoxical approach of if we arm all of these countries with nuclear weapons, we would simultaneously increase the opportunity for a global destructive war. But at the same time, factually speaking, we also increase the, uh, the chances that these countries will never go to war because they'd be worried about global destruction. Uh, so is it a situation where Command and control becomes the operative phrase where if a country is seeking a nuclear weapon, nations that are already well equipped with nukes should go in and show them how to correctly set up their nuclear infrastructure so that it doesn't get compromised.
0: Well, okay. so we talked about the problem um, from a few different angles, but let's talk about um, how we would solve this. I know that's a that's a that's a big ask for a podcast that is recording. But I think we can do it. I think I, I think, think we, we could it. at least break down the potential options. Um, so the the first option. Um, is sanctions. We talked about that briefly, the difficulty in sanctioning a country like North Korea, the difficulty in getting China, pressuring them to sanction an economy that they do um, a significant amount of economic business with, um, especially when they have an interest in protecting their own sovereignty with not allowing the United States to have more power closer to a Chinese border.
3: I think there are really two opposite ways that you can approach this on a timeline.
0: Okay. You can start on the
3: lower end, which is with sanctions. If a country, if country X is thinking about getting nuclear weapons, you start with the conversation that there's no reason to have nuclear weapons. Uh, We talk about why it's mutually beneficial for them not to have them. If they still pursue it, you do the sanctions and you increase sanctions as they get uh, closer to having nuclear weapons with the contemplation that force may be used, right? That's one approach. The flip side of that is, again, country X seeks nuclear weapon, wants it, We try to persuade them not to get it. As soon as they start getting those systems in place, we use force.
0: And I think that is—I think you're right. I think the problem is when you look at the history of these types of issues that the United States has had with countries, we're not quick to do that, Um, and we're not quick to catch it on that beginning part um, because oftentimes, obviously, there's a great deal of emphasis in these other countries put on ensuring and protecting these nuclear sites— I mean, for instance, Iran built a nuclear facility into a mountain, Um, and and then you saw the United States deal with that problem in really a a way— We're still dealing with that. We're we're still dealing with that problem. That's correct. But when the Bush administration was—and this, I think, transferred into the Obama administration— when they were dealing with the problem, they um, used kind of a cyber weapon for the first time in an offensive way called the Stuxnet virus, which hacked into these Cisco servers um, and computers that were they knew were running in the um, Iranian um, nuclear facilities. They used those um, to— No one knew
3: we were also IT specialists.
0: I mean, I, here we are, folks. They exploited a zero-day— um, Whoa! Yeah, zero-day is obviously, you know— a hole in a computer system that uh, no one knows about. And so it's a, vul- it. it's a vulnerability that, um, if known, can be exploited to take total control of the system. And so we used a zero day exploit to um, create the Stuxnet virus that we used to offensively tackle the Iranian nuclear issue. The problem was it was a band aid, it didn't solve the underlying problem. Um, We delayed them. We destroyed centrifuges. I'm sure we made people angry. I'm sure we frustrated tech specialists all over Tehran, but it didn't solve the problem. But what would have solved the problem at that point? So we, we suggest a stronger form of military action. Well, the
3: problem is all of this is case sensitive. You have to, because in Iran... If you were to use force, they would just block the Persian Gulf.
0: Exactly, and then all of our gas prices go up. The Strait of Hormuz is is taken complete control of. You have more confrontation with U.S. ships in that patrol, and all of a sudden you can't— And politicians
3: are more wary. When there are domestic consequences to international actions, politicians are more wary— of taking those international actions because elections always are in the back of their
0: minds. And just ask Jimmy Carter about the the price of oil and the price of gas and the embargo when he was president. It has effect on the domestic politics. So all of these things are affecting the decisions that, that can be made. I mean, and it's just not that simple. If we're looking at a case-by-case basis, when you turn to North Korea...
3: So l- let's just look at North Korea. Let's forego talking a little bit about some of these other countries and focus on what the U.S.'s effort to North Korea could be. Uh, And I think those really are going to be about soft power. I think it is past the prime uh, for our relations with that country for us to use any kind of hard power just because of the proximity to South Korea and the fact that North Korea does have nuclear weapons.
0: I mean, I I don't know. I mean, I think that obviously there's a risk, and I think South Korea would be vehemently opposed to us taking military action against— And China and Japan. Against North Korea, but I don't think the Trump administration has taken it off the table yet. Um, But isn't
3: that also just another bargaining tactic? Uh, Of course, you want the other side to think that at the end of the day, force is an option, uh, you don't want to play your hand, and Donald knows all about the art of the deal. The
0: art of the deal—it's a New York Times bestseller that he had a ghostwriter. Right? What
3: isn't a New York Times bestseller? That's
0: a good point. You can drive up a lot of sales. You can—we should be a New York Times bestseller.
3: We will be writing a book soon.
0: How to be civil? It's TBD on the pod.
3: So, w- without all that, oh, with all that being said, for North Korea, soft power definitely seems like. The real only way to go, even though you want to say that hard power still is on the on the back burner, uh, but with that being said, coup. Like that, I think that to me is the word of the day for North Korea is you have got to get the Kim Jong Un, the Kim Dynasty, out of the way. Uh, there needs to be a moderate in power.
0: I don't think there's any way to achieve that absent like clandestine military intervention. I mean, you're going to have to have a CIA capture type of assassination. Right. Like
3: if only we had an intelligence agency that has actually supported coups in the past.
0: I mean we do. Luckily the and we did this in Iran, by the way, earlier in our history. Didn't quite work out that well. Didn't work out that well there. And it historically has not had a great success rate, but it's certainly something we know that we are willing to try. So when we're talking about soft power solutions to North Korea, what does that even mean? What are what are examples of soft power solutions?
3: I think it's going around North Korea. We already know that The Kim Jong-un dynasty does not want to deal with the United States.
0: They only want to deal with Dennis Rodman, who is coincidentally going to North Korea. I guess he's our cultural
3: ambassador to North Korea now.
0: I mean, if you had to pick someone from the United States to be a cultural ambassador, Dennis Rodman, not a bad pick. He's got to do it for the culture. He did it for Michael. Well, so with that being said, we have to go
3: around North Korea, and China is the country that we really need to reach out to. If we're able to offer China something that it can see as being worth more than the destabilization of North Korea, that is really going to be the starting point. That's a, that's a lot.
0: I'm not sure what that could be other than maybe backing off islands in the South China Sea. That could be a carrot that might be big enough to get them to move on this issue, but I don't even know if we... An arms deal? A possible
3: $110 billion arms deal? We seem to be doing quite a few of those. That's
0: Donald Trump's specialty. I mean, the Saudis got one. Why not the Chinese? Well, if
3: you look at it, and again, not to get too far in the weeds, China is a country that could use an arms deal. It wants to have a burgeoning domestic uh, you know, military industrial complex, but it still lags far behind in a lot of areas like their Air Force and their Navy. That's something that we could help with. Some A, a way that China could become a, a blue water Navy, a way that China could assert itself without needing to feel like American intrusion into the Korean Peninsula is a direct threat to them. If you don't fear... The enemy, then you're more willing to, to work with them. If you really don't think that they are going to do anything. Yeah,
0: I think I read that in Sun Tzu's Art of the War. Or Art of War.
3: So with that being said, it seems like of all the options that exist right now on the table, there's some really bad ones. I think going into North Korea through a full-scale invasion, probably Terrible. one of the bad
0: ones. Terrible idea. One
3: option that might be uh, a stopgap for now is another Stuxnet type Cyber attack,
0: and right. I would I would hazard a guess that that's currently going on as we speak.
3: Uh, a cultural blitzkrieg, if you will, from the South Korean side. Uh, South Korea launches uh, aircraft that drop pellets uh, all the time on North Korea that tell them how great South Korea is. That's a possibility. Maybe build a theme park right on the border, something North
0: has done. The, these are all uh, pretty uh... A, lot, a
3: lot of wild ideas. But I think that in the end, I know a lot of this sounds crazy, but that's what it seems like is going to have to be the way that we approach this traditional approaches don't really help that much in world ending scenarios. Yeah, that's true. So really at the end of the day, that's where we have to go. We have to go to the non-traditional approaches, whatever creative situations we can bring ourselves to that don't include using full force, brute force attacks. That's where we have to go. I know that in the end, this doesn't. This pod has not. We've not solved the problem. We have not completely solved the problem, but I think we can get the ball rolling, and that we need politicians, world leaders that are willing to be creative, despite a lot of the pushback that they're going to get from other countries.
0: Yeah, that's right. Donald Trump build a theme park in South Korea. You'd love that. It's like Sim City, or you know, you could call it Trump co- City. Roller coaster tycoon. You can call it Trump. We can we can have it gilded in gold. Gilded, gilded yeah. roller coasters. That will solve the North Korean nuclear problem. You heard that here and only here on Civility.
3: So I think that wraps up this episode.
0: Another riveting episode of PodCivility. Where
3: we did come, I'd say, about 85% towards solving nuclear weapons. And
0: we tried to avoid James Comey as much as he
3: possible. He peeked his head in. Just a little
0: bit. Just a little I bit. I think that's only right.
3: We can hopefully wane off this for the next few weeks.
0: All right. Subscribe to the podcast, review the podcast, tell your friends about the podcast, be about the podcast. We'll see you here next week on Civility.